And I meant to mention also as well, and I think most of you know the drill, that the parking passes, and I think there are three left there if anyone fails to pick one up, uh, that allows you to go on up to the lodge, don't have to ride, ride the shuttle. But we have been asked not to display those in our windshield until we get through the main gate into the park. Uh, because they're generally for uh, hotel guests only. Everybody else has to ride the uh, shuttle unless they're an employee or have some special status, you know. Uh, but they do pass a few out. Greg is able to to get some for us for this particular use since we're using the auditorium there. So he just says it's better to put them up when you get to the parking lot or, well, probably before you turn up the canyon to go to uh, to the lodge so that anybody that did question it would see it. <coughs> and also it is better to park down by the cabins rather than up in the main parking lot right by the lodge. That can get congested, but generally we have lots of parking down at the first entrance uh, where you go into the uh, the cabins that are rented out by the night. And that's about it. We have a, an ice cream social tonight at 7, a little after sundown. They have some a few special things planned. I think uh, somebody dug up some old excerpts from the Carol Burnett show, which is just good fun slapstick humor and comedy from way far back that doesn't have a lot of the things that more modern entertainment has that aren't good. So we'll watch a bit of that, but you can also bring games and play table games of what kind ever. I, you know, we don't want to watch Carol Burnett all night. That's like everybody sitting and watching TV and not fellowshipping, but it's, it's a social, not just a, a movie showing. So we'll see a little bit of that and have a little laughter perhaps, and then we can socialize and play games through what part of the evening you want. I will not be here till 3 a.m., but that's your business. <coughs> okay, let's get on into the message for today. I had intended yesterday when I got done with Psalm 45, I didn't anticipate it would take me that long to get through it, but uh, I had intended to go to 145 as well. And I don't want to take the time to read and expound this whole chapter. But here again, it's uh, one of those psalms that talks about God and his greatness, his glory, his characteristics, his character qualities, and various things that David mentions. And there are many of these in the Psalms, and especially these last, uh, this last book of the Psalms, the last section, the fifth section of the Psalms, has a great deal of that because there is a movement of history through the Psalms and through the church and its history that concludes with the return of Christ and everyone uh, looking to him. But I, I wanted to at least mention as an addendum to yesterday's sermon but that part of the sample prayer that Christ gave for us, which says glory uh, to address God as the glorious God in his might and power and so on, opening that prayer, uh, is sometimes difficult for us. 
depending on our emotional state, our mental state, uh, what we have on our mind, sometimes we may have four, five, six words that we like to use to give God praise, honor, and glory, and those are some of the ones that we use probably quite a little. But to expand that, to get us in the mood, if you will, to truly talk to God, sometimes we need a little more than that. And maybe we've heard this before, and I've probably said it myself, but uh, there is a psalm for most any circumstance, probably any circumstance, that you might find yourself in at any given moment. There are some that speak of trial and trouble and difficulty and how David would address God when he was under those circumstances, when his enemies were crowding in on him, and he had many. Uh, there are those who, which extol God, such as 145 and on through 150, give, along with many others, that do glorify and show his greatness. So why not just get your Bible down? You know, sometimes you, you, you get down to pray, you know you should, and you just draw a blank. I, I don't know what to say today. Or you don't really feel maybe as close to God or as connected to God sometimes as you might others when you get ready to pray. So you can find a psalm that will help get you in the right mood to pray to God. And just Get on your knees and open the Bible in front of you and make it your prayer. You, you, you can just pray as you read. Say, God, make this my prayer. I don't have the words to say today. I don't know how to approach you. I don't know what should be said. But I have a really, really good example of it here from David the King, who is a man after your own heart. And this is the prayer I want to pray. And you know, by the time you go through it, you'll probably have the same attitude David did when he wrote it. Uh, that's just the way it works. It can prepare your mind and make your prayers more effective. So that's basically what I, I had to say about that. It's a, it's a key and a tool that can be used that perhaps sometimes we forget. Sometimes I think of it, and more often than not I don't. But when I do, it can be a real boon and asset in making your prayer more meaningful and more inspired and helpful. So, let's not uh, dwell on this further, but let's go to Matthew 19. Now, Christ came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And we are focusing in this peace series on the kingdom of God. And Christ had quite a little to say about it. We won't have time to examine everything he said because he was so focused on getting back into his Father's kingdom, as well as preparing the way that we might be there as well. So almost everything he did or said had some bearing on the kingdom of God. It was the primary subject, the main focus of his life and of his ministry and of getting the disciples clued in on what they would need to do in the future in order to further the purposes of God and to help prepare people for that kingdom. So I want to pick it up and hit some of the highlights of some of the things he had to say, because there's much really good instruction there for us to help prepare us 
and to review it during the Feast of Tabernacles and help us focus on that kingdom to come and our need to be there and our desire to be there and the methods we need to obtain that is a good part of what we should consider. So Matthew 19, and let's begin in verse 14. But Emmanuel said, Suffer little children, or permit little children, and forbid them not to come to me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Now, does that mean that we need to be spiritual babes, <laughs> or stay spiritual babes, or should we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and become spiritually mature? Do we have to go back to babyhood spiritually? No. There was a time when Paul did remind them in Hebrews 6 that we need to move forward and move on, not going back to the first principles, the very basics of what the kingdom of God is about or the Christian life is about. Uh, it doesn't mean we don't need to review those things and keep them fully in mind, but those are things that we have learned, perhaps, and we need to go on to greater, better understanding. So it doesn't want us to remain babes, but what he's pointing out here is attitude. The little children have an attitude that points to the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed thence. Now to expand that just a little bit, what does it mean to have the attitude or the approach of little children? Little children can have bad attitudes, and I'm sure that's not what he's talking about. But the overall position of a little child is to be believing. He's little, and his parents are big. And everything he's learned since the time he was born has basically come from his parents. So he has a very high believability quotient. He is willing to listen. He wants to learn. He's curious about so many things. And children get into a lot of things, don't they? Because they don't know what that is or how it works. So they try to explore and figure it out, and they learn things they should and shouldn't touch. But they have a very curious mind that's seeking to learn. And there is so much to learn about God, His plan, His kingdom, the way of life that it will have within it. There is so very, very much that needs to be learned. So we need to have the teachability and the curiosity of a little child. A willingness to be taught. You know, there are not too many people throughout the earth who really have a teachable attitude. They like to think they know it all. Now, he didn't say here the attitude of a half-grown child, the attitude of a little child. There's a certain point at which we lose that tender willingness, that curiosity, that, well, what's that about, Daddy? Why, Mommy? We lose that, and then we get to the point where this is the way it is, Daddy, <laughs> because I know the answers now. I'm grown. I'm 14. 
Well, yeah. But they lose that little innocence. Then they have to be treated perhaps differently, handled differently, in order to actually bring them to true adulthood. But there is that in human nature that wants to think it knows it all, and it's rooted in pride and vanity and ego. Uh, we shouldn't lose the curiosity, the willingness to listen and to learn, to be instructed by God through his word, through life and its experiences, and to be humble enough to accept what we hear. He doesn't want us to be set in our ways. You know, when a child, even the psychologists and teachers and so on, recognize that there is a period of time in a young child's life when it is forming its basic character, its basic approach to life, its personality. And part of it is nature and part of it is nurture. Part of it is genetically there, and we become more like our parents, it seems, in many respects, the older we get, because that nurture, and perhaps the nature along with it, begins to play a stronger uh, force upon us, so that by the time we reach 40, 50, 60 years of age, a lot of people say you're just like your parents, if they're around. But we have those formative years. And we are in a formative situation here as little children of God, all called the church, his little children. Edward Armstrong used to call us his children. Not that he was in the place of God and we were his children that way, but as an older man and we were younger, we were in kind of a parent-child relationship or teacher-student relationship not a religious thing in that sense, like, you know, Papa in Rome. Uh, it wasn't that kind of thing, but a family situation or atmosphere that he was trying to produce. And it's valid. <clears throat> Some people get to the place that they have a ridge there, perhaps based on background and what they've gone through in their lives, and that can't be changed or prevented, but it sometimes leaves a ridge there of an attitude. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I won't listen to anybody. And they've lost that innocent, formative willingness to learn that they had as a two, three, four-year-old child. And they've gotten hardened, and life can do that. But we don't want to let that happen to us, because Christ said, of such is the kingdom of heaven. If you go back to Matthew 5, of course, it talks about humility and meekness, teachability, ability to help make peace instead of destroy the peace, and attitudes there that we ought to have, and those are by and large, the attitudes that a little child often has. So that's what he's pointing to. Not the ego, not the vanity, not the pride that besets us all, but to have a meek, humble, teachable approach. If we have that, 
we will learn the things that we need to learn in order to provide the kind of spirit, attitude, and character that is needed in God's kingdom to help other people. Let's go on down from there. Verse 16, And behold, one came and said to him, Good Master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now this man was pretty self-righteous. He wondered, what good thing can I do? In other words, I'm already pretty righteous, I'm, I'm okay, but what good thing must I do to enter in the kingdom of God? And he said to him, Why do you call me good? There is none good but one, that is God. So he immediately, first words out of his mouth, contrasted the attitude of this young rich man to his own attitude. You're coming here full of yourself and wanting to know what good thing you must do. Would it be an offering you'd put in, you know, or some such thing that would qualify you for the kingdom of God? And it was all about his overall attitude. Christ says, why do you call me good? I'm just a human being. There's only one good, and that's God. Even the very Son of God did not show any pride, any vanity, any ego. He was just going to say, hey, I'm not good. How come you think you're so good? And he knew who he was. But if you were in your life, keep the commandments. Good advice for anyone, anywhere. If you will enter life, keep the commandments. <clears throat> that was a general answer that would apply to any and everyone. You and me. And he said to him, Rich, well, you know, I, I keep them. Which one are you talking about? Emmanuel said, You shall do no murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I what could I possibly lack? I've already done all this. I don't know how much of an honor it was to his parents to have anybody this full of himself, pride and vanity and ego, uh, to claim that he was essentially perfect. He'd done everything he could do, needed to do. You know, how could you criticize me? Emmanuel said to him, if you will be perfect, go and sell that you have and give it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Christ was able to see immediately what the young man's problem was. He was young, he was rich, full of himself, and he loved his money. He didn't even have to go further than the first commandment to pin this guy down. Idolatry. <clears throat> Putting his money ahead of God. Now, does this teaching mean that every one of us ought to go out and sell everything we have and give it to show our spiritual maturity and perfection? No, that's not what's being said. What's being said is 
don't put anything ahead of God. And this fellow had a problem with idolatry first, foremost, and above everything else. He put his money above God. So the specific, not the general instruction of keeping the commandments, but the specific instruction that would solve this person's problem was getting rid of idolatry. Now I'm sure place could have gone on down and named the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth commandment, and he could have shown the young man how he had not really and truly kept any of them. You beg one, you've broken them all. <clears throat> if you have an idol, self or money, or whatever your idol might be, then that breaks the rest. Because you're murdering yourself and your opportunity to turn a life, you're lying to yourself about your true status. You're not loving your neighbor as yourself because you're putting yourself ahead of others, which this young man obviously was doing. And on and on it goes. Then said Emmanuel to his disciples, he says, Now I want you guys to learn from this as well. Not just this young man that I nailed on the first thing that the commandments talk about, but I want you to understand this. Truly, I say to you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Most people on the face of this earth desire to be rich. Materiality is one of our greatest gods. Doesn't mean that it's wrong to have things, doesn't mean it's wrong to earn and to acquire, to have possessions. But there is the tendency and there is the possibility that the more you have, the more you will look to it and the less you will look to God. If you've had nothing to eat or drink, and fasting is a simulated situation of that. You would begin to look around and say, how am I going to get something to eat or drink? And you just might pretty quickly turn to God because there's no other answer. There's no one here to feed me. There's no one to do anything for me. Maybe God in heaven will help. And that's where we turn in times of trouble. Hang any atheist you want upside down in a well for a little while and he'll start crying out to God. Or whoever it is up there, maybe he thinks it's Allah or something, but he'll start crying out to a higher deity, whatever it is in his mind, than he is. Because deep down, all people have a sense that there is something greater than they are. All religions, whatever they might be, have some type of afterlife they look to or that they believe in. I say all, there might be some oddball small thing around that doesn't, but that would be rare. But all the major ones and most of the others do. But the more we trust in anything but God, and money comes easily to mind because that's what most people trust in, 
long as they feel flesh, who needs God? As long as things are going well for them, who needs God? You and I have experienced it many, many times. When things are going well, we feel well, uh, we have plenty physically, it's easy to drift and not depend as much on God. And then when things go bad, we've mismanaged or we have bad health or, you know, things are topsy-turvy for some reason, and it's usually our own doing in one way or another, then we seek God's answers. It drives us to our needs. And that's why we have many trials, troubles, and tribulations. Second Timothy 3.12, through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. I had that one written down later, but it fits here. You don't naturally and easily and normally seek God by yourself. That's why he says there in Psalm 34.19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but God will deliver them from, the, from them all. We have to go through trouble and difficulty in order to get us to do what we need to do. It's just the way humans are. So he said, think it not strange, these trials that come upon you. God allows them, sometimes causes them, if you don't cause them yourself, in order to teach us, to keep us on the path. And money can really, really get in our way. Maybe that's why he called so many poor people. <laughs> there aren't many people that I've ever met in the church who had much money. And there aren't many people in the church who had much money that stayed in the church. Because it's so easy to be idolatrous. You get a little money in your pocket, it's easy to turn aside or not to be wholehearted toward God. So, much here that he was trying to get across to his disciples. And when they heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? Because in their experience, everybody they knew was trying to get rich. So it says, if a rich man can't, can just barely get there, who's going to make it? But Emmanuel beheld them and said to them, With men this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now that statement reveals a lot. Of and by ourselves, given money, riches, plenty in this life, cannot, it is impossible with men, to put God first in our lives if we are wealthy. And believe me, brethren, you are wealthy. I said God calls many poor into the church, and that is true if you consider the United States only. The promised land that has everything that we could possibly need within it. But when you throw in the rest of the world, we're all pretty wealthy. We get three meals a day, or four or five, counting snacks, or six. We have enough to eat, most of us. It's getting to the point in society where some do not as things get worse. But that has been the history of this country, is that there's been plenty for everybody. 
So compared to people in Africa, places in Asia, South America, and so on, they would consider us rich. Most of them would take anything you have and feel like a very wealthy person, even an old mobile home. True story. I've visited many places like that. How many places in different parts of Africa have I seen people living in cardboard that they've found somewhere and scavenged and kind of tied it together with whatever they could find, old clothes or whatever, and made a shelter out of just trash and rubbish they picked up wherever they could find it. And it goes on for miles and miles outside Cape Town and Johannesburg and in other countries, Kenya and other places. We are rich, and it is impossible for us to enter the kingdom of God given what we are. But with God, all things are possible. So what we have to do is yield to him, look to him, put him first like the real young rich man wouldn't do, and then we are starting to understand what is needed to be in the kingdom of God. God has to be first in our lives. And he is the one who is the author of salvation, not us. We have to go through him to obtain salvation. Can't do it on your own. Nobody yet has made himself immortal. No one's changed himself into spirit. Satan can't do it for you. Only God can Christ said, He is the door, the way, and the life. The only way you can become part of the kingdom of God is through Christ. It's the only door there is. So with God it is possible. Then Peter answered and said to him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed you. So he had an answer to that. God, Christ said, You've got to go to God and you've got to give up everything. And Peter says, we've done that. And you and I might look at it and say, we've done that. At least in part, maybe not entirely, as Peter hadn't entirely. But he looked at his life and those of the disciples and says, you know, we've, we've done this. We've sacrificed. We're here with you. And Emmanuel said to them, truly I say to you, that you which have followed me in the regeneration or the resurrection, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So Peter truthfully had answered, We have given up. When you came and we were tending our nets or collecting taxes or whatever we were doing, and you said, Come and follow me, we dropped the nets, we dropped the ledger, and we followed you. You know what? That's unusual. And it is so unusual that he told them right then and there. They didn't even have the Holy Spirit yet. But the commitment they had made, the attitude they had, and what he had in mind coincided, and he said, you're going to rule all over the twelve tribes of Israel. Go back to Revelation 21, and that's what it says as well corroborates what he said right here. And everyone, not just those who would rule over the tribes, everyone that has forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, 
or land for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. Almost every one of you has done this. We all gave up whatever homes we had. We in many cases gave up relatives, husbands, wives, children, whatever it took to come and do what the scriptures tell us to do right here in the end time. We've done it in part, in back in worldwide, many of us, by putting God first, and in some cases, I watched the trauma of it. Back in the 60s, when I was in the ministry, I watched families wrenched apart, husbands and wives who loved each other, because one understood the truth and the other didn't. They wound up in divorce. They wound up separated. They wound up, in many cases, losing children because of custody that was given to one or the other or whatever. The truth of God divides and separates normal human beings from each other. Because if God calls one and doesn't call the other, and the other cannot understand, sometimes it breaks relationships. So many, many, even then, wound up losing their marriages, their children, their homes, their jobs, to keep the feast, or whatever. They made a commitment to God and they put him first. Now we have to continue that. We have to be willing to have that attitude and not give up and turn around, and we'll see that in a few moments. We have to maintain that. And that's what the disciples did. He gave them great encouragement here. But they were going to go into a situation where they would be persecuted, hated by the rulers that were and by the religious people, by everyone around them, they would be hated. And they would have to persevere and be faithful and strong no matter what happened unto death. And he even told them in another place that in this life they would die, exception of John. The rest did. Martyrs for God. So at this point, they had been willing to walk away from their wives and children, and they had them. Peter had a house, he had wives, a wife, children. Others did. They walked away to follow Christ. Now that takes commitment. That takes sincerity. That takes character. It takes determination. It takes putting God ahead of self and everything else there might be. We did it back in worldwide, many of us, and many sitting right here, read some scriptures about what God would have us do here at the end. We left our homes, we sold them, a case or two, maybe even walked away, walked away from mates in order to come and do what, Mal uh, what uh, Micah 4 said, what scriptures in Isaiah say, Various prophecies that talked about the end time. And we have an even bigger movement about to happen. 
when God is going to call a remnant together very shortly. And he is going to bring people, one from here, two from there, a family here, from all over the world, of those he knows to be faithful. Many of them will leave their mates. Many of them will leave their whole families. They will certainly leave whatever house, automobile, possessions they have behind. And they will come to serve God, to serve his Christ, and to do God's end-time work. Haggai, Zechariah, Isaiah are full of it. It's going to happen. God will be able to discern and ponder the hearts of people that have been called around the world. And those that he chooses for the job, he will stir to action, and they will indeed do just what these disciples had done, and they will come here. And God will use them to build his temple and his city and be a light in Zion on a hill to be seen by the whole world. That's what's coming. We are fortunate that we have known ahead of time and an advanced party to come to do those things ahead of time. To be thankful that we could. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. One of the other Gospels put it, many that are last shall be first. Not everyone, obvious, obviously. But many of us here in the end time will be in the first resurrection. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and Enoch, and Samuel, and those people will be there as well. But many of these here at the last will be among the first as well. There's a cost to being in the kingdom of God. And we have to be willing to pay the price. How much is it worth to live forever? How much is it worth to be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye? Is there anything on this earth that's worth more than that? The young rich man thought there was. And Christ nailed him on that idol immediately. What's your idol? What do you put ahead of God? These are hard words. But they have to be spoken because they're the words of Christ right here in the gospel. He said, this is what has to be done. Are you willing? Are you ready? Will you do it? There's nothing free. Even the kingdom of God, though freely given by a God who wants to give it to us, has a price to put him ahead of ourselves. And that is our biggest idol, is self. We can idolize our mate, we can idolize our children, we can idolize our car, our job. There are a lot of things we can idolize. What is yours? He found this guy's right off. Wasn't too hard to find. Let's go to Mark 12.
Heretofore, in the first two sermons of this series, I touched on some pretty inspiring scriptures and things that God has ahead of us for those who will obey. But you've got to get into this part of it as well, because this is what the kingdom of God is like. Well, and let's begin in verse 28. Better, in perceiving that he had answered them well, ask him, which is the first commandment of all? What is the most important? And Emmanuel answered him, The first of all the commandments, here is the most important. This is the epical one. Hear, O Israel, the eternal our God is one Lord. A statement prefacing the first of the Ten Commandments. There's your family's not it. Your bank account isn't it. There's just one. And you shall love the eternal your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. You will make God the absolute focus of every part of your life. You will always put him first. Human beings, man and woman, will tell each other this. I love you with all my heart, mind, body, soul. We promise each other such wonderful things. And maybe we feel that way. And maybe we can at least partially live up to that. Being human, we won't completely, but we can try. But when it comes to God, that has to be in capital, bold letters. He is first. Nothing comes ahead of God. Nothing. Do you put the medical profession ahead of God? What do you put ahead of God? Do you put your life ahead of God rather than the prayer of faith? Would it be better to die in the faith or to live a few more months on a respirator? We have to make choices. Do we love God? Do we trust Him with our health, with our wealth, with everything that we are, with our families, with our own life? Now, I cannot legislate faith on any subject. Can't do it. But I can tell you, in the words of Christ himself, that you have to come through growth to the point you live your life walking in faith in every part of life. Will he find faith when he comes to this earth? Very, very little. Very, very few are willing to put themselves in God's hands no matter what the situation is and leave it there. That is a goal to aspire to. It is a benchmark we need to work toward so that we obey implicitly everything God says and Trust him to take care of us 
since we have done what we should do. And really that's what those disciples we just read about had done. They were willing to give up everything they had and come and follow Christ. I think we're going to read in a little bit something about some people who had excuses or reasons whereby they couldn't do certain things. They needed to take care of them. And uh, you're next, God, but I've got to take care of this first. That doesn't work. We'll see that. Love God with all your heart, soul, body, mind, and with all your strength. It takes strength to put God first instead of ourselves. And it's easy to not trust in God because we can't see Him, but we've been taught to trust in other things all our lives. For whatever category of life or part of life you're talking about. We have to get rid of those idols. We have to put God first. And the second is like, namely this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is none other commandment greater than these. Now notice the difference in them. One is to love God above everything, with all your heart. The other is to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Now, both of those are extreme challenges. Extreme challenges. And God tells us in many places that loving our neighbor as ourself is how he, in great part, determines how much we love him. It's one of the primary guidelines he has. How can they love me if they don't love each other? How can they treat me well if they don't treat each other well? And the scribe said to him, Well, Master, you have said the truth. For there is one God and there is none other but he. And what I said just now, what I've been reading and extrapolating upon, is true. And it's easy to say. It is very hard to do. There is none other but he, and to love him with all your heart and with all the understanding and with all the soul and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Kill hundreds, thousands of animals as sacrifices to God, and these two principles carried out are more important than all that. And when Emmanuel saw that he answered discreetly or wisely, he said, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Understanding and saying those two things put that man very near to the kingdom of God. Remember the little thing we used to say as children, now you're cold, now you're getting warm, you're getting warmer, we're looking for a hidden treasure. Now I'm getting colder, so we'd reverse directions and go. Kind of same thing here. People can have all kinds of attitudes, they can have all kinds of experiences, they can learn. And this man, hearing that, 
repeated it back. And Christ said, you didn't reject that. You accepted that. It sounds like you believe that. You're getting very, very warm. You're getting really, really close to the kingdom of God. If there's anything that you and I could take from this feast, from this sermon, from this book, that's about as close to the kingdom of God as you're going to get. Love God above everything there is. And love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And you're getting very near the kingdom of God. If we just work on those two things, I think we'll make it. If we accomplish those two things, there's no question in my mind we'll make it. There's no question in Scripture we'll make it if we accomplish those two things. Because those summarize, encapsulate all the commandments. It boils down, and there are none greater than those. The rest are just better explanations, or more detailed explanations of those two principles. There isn't anything better than that. So I might as well sit down, shut up, and you have free time the rest of the feast because I've said all there is to say. But there's more in the Bible than that, isn't there? There is more detail. There is more technicality. There is more that can shed light on those two things. So perhaps we should continue. How'd you know I'd say that? Let's go to Luke 7. Luke 7. And here, we'll just start with the beginning. There's much, much in this section of Luke about the kingdom of God. Now, when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum, and a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. This was a Roman centurion, an officer in the Roman army. He wasn't a Jew. He wasn't a Christian. He was just a soldier in another man's army. And when he heard of Emmanuel, he sent to him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. He didn't know Christ. He knew his reputation. He did not feel he had the capacity or the authority to look him up and approach him himself because he was a Roman and Christ was a Jew. Just as there might be some public figure today that we would deign to approach, not feeling we were worthy or in the same class or the same category that we could casually or formally even approach them. It's like people have said when they visit a dignitary, like the President of the United States, you know, what do you say? You're just a regular average person out here and suddenly you're put with the leader of the so-called free world, what do you say? How's it going? How are the kids? You know, what, what do you say? Because he is dealing with huge, tremendous problems, responsibilities, and has challenges before him that you could not even begin to discuss, unless you know God's way. So, 
you really wouldn't know what was appropriate to say. How's your golf game? You know, it, it would seem inane to you. And this centurion was in somewhat that same position, so he said, well, he's, Christ is a Jew, so I'll get some of these Jewish leaders and let them approach him, and maybe he'll, through them he'll hear what I have to say. Who am I? I'm just a Roman. Now, it was an occupying army, of course, but to just walk into the Jewish religion and act like you belong there was not something he was comfortable with. What if the Mormons were having a general conference and you saw something in the Mormon church you thought you wouldn't mind having? You're just going to sashay right on up there and walk in the middle of the meeting and being a heathen, non-Mormon, you're just going to walk up and act like you belong there and that you're going to receive benefits from them? Now you're not. Well, this guy was in the same kind of position. And when they came to Emmanuel, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. So the Jews made known the centurion's request, and they said, We know him, and he's a, he's a good guy. Uh, I, I think he's worthy of you healing his son, even though he's not one of yours. But he's, he's, he's a good guy. For he loves our nation, and he has built us a synagogue. So this Roman has gone way above and beyond. He, he loves the Jewish people. He loves the nation we have here. Yeah, he's an occupying armed guard for the Romans. But he even built as a synagogue. So he's trying to show some kind of credit or worthiness that this person might have, whereby he would receive a blessing. Remember the time when Christ told the lady, you know, I'm not going to heal your child. You're not even an Israelite. And she says, well, even the dogs eat the crumbs from the table. He says, I haven't seen an attitude like that. I mean, what he said could have been race-baiting, couldn't it? Couldn't it be construed to be that? Even the dogs, they call the Gentiles dogs at that time. That's not politically correct today to call anybody of any race anything but your honor. He got away with it. And she was humble about it. She didn't take the bait. And when he saw that humility, he said, You got it, lady. If we had those kind of attitudes today, with humility and meekness between races, there wouldn't be a lot of the trouble there is on the earth. But when Christ saw that in her, he said, I don't care who you are, I'm going to take care of you. You know what? He says the same thing about us. If we'll do what we're supposed to and have the right attitude, he's going to say, I'm going to take care of you. Guaranteed. He can't stand himself when he sees humility and meekness. He says, okay, I'm with that. I'm in. I'm in right here. Let's go. It's the way he thinks. So they came trying to portray the centurion in the same way as that lady was, an outsider deserving inside attention. Verse 6, then Emmanuel went with them, and when he was not now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying, Lord, trouble not yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. 
He was a man of authority in the Roman army. But he had a, a humble approach. I'm not worthy for you to come in my house. He, didn't, he wasn't ostentatious about it and said, I'm a Roman centurion, don't you dare come in my house, you filthy Jew. It was the other way around. I'm not worthy to have you visit my house. You're greater than I. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come to you. No, who am I? But say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. You don't have to visit. You don't have to be there personally. Just say it. I know it'll happen, and you can go on your way. You don't have to be bothering with me, but I do have this sick one that I love that I don't want to see die. So please have mercy. And notice what reasoning the man used, verse 8. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So the man is saying, I understand authority, and I know you have authority. So you don't have to come here. All you have to do is say the word, and it'll happen just like I have to say the word, and my soldiers do exactly what I say. Things are organized, they work. Things get done. When Emmanuel heard these things, he marveled at him. This is a rare occurrence. This is an unusual attitude. He marveled that this man could have such an attitude. And turned him about and said to the people who followed him, I say to you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Here was a Roman centurion who simply trusted that God's word, Christ's word in this case, was as good as gold. You say it. I know it'll happen. I'm not worried about it. How many of us are able to say, whatever you say, I'm in. I'm there. I'm doing it. And I know that if I do it, you'll take care of me. That kind of simple, absolute, genuine trust and faith is very rare. Very rare. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. Can Christ take care of our needs? You know, healing is an absolute guaranteed promise, brethren, there in James. Absolute guaranteed promise. It has a contingency, however, and that is that we pray the prayer of faith. Believing it. Knowing it will happen. Utterly understanding and trusting in God. And there is where we fall short. We don't have that kind of faith. Now, we may have left home, family, mother, brother, sister, and children, and so on. But we still have room to grow. We still have opportunity to trust God more than we now do. And we're going to have to. You will be faced with it soon. Very soon now, there will be famines and pestilences in this land that will begin to kill tens of millions of people. I don't know whether it's going to be the Ebola, the 
whatever it is, 68, that is out there at the moment. But it'll be something, if not those, it will be similar, and it's very close at hand. It's going to happen. Tens of millions of Americans are going to die very shortly now. They will not have pharmaceuticals and pills available. There will be no insulin available. There will be a destitution of food. There will be warring enemy soldiers trying to kill millions of people. Ezekiel 5 outlines it. Matthew 24 does too, in time. And when you see these things, he says, know that salvation is near. The things that we, as human beings, as Americans, and the freedoms that we have revered, will be taken away. And we'd better revere God instead of those rights. Because they will not exist. And the abundance in this promised land will not be here. And if you are to survive, the only one you can depend upon is God. That's it. No more, no less. How hard would it be for an invading army to overrun Cane Beds, Arizona? Be real simple. Real easy. We're sitting right out here in the open. Would it be any better in Zion, hiding among those canyons? A little safer, but not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. They cut off food. You can't go to the store. You can't get to Hurricane or St. George without being killed, without contacting disease. And then all they got to do is drop some poisonous gases down in those canyons. You're dead. You're just dead. If we don't have God's divine protection, we will die. And I mean it, all of us. Some will survive the Holocaust to come. But I'll guarantee you, without God's protection, you and I would not. Why? Because Satan knows exactly who we are. If he sees the tiniest spark of God's Spirit in a human mind, he'll come after that one first. It's what he does immediately when he's cast down the last time in Revelation 12. He's coming after the church. He's coming after any true Christian there is. And when she flees to the mountains of Judea, right up here in Zion, what they call Park Today, any who are left behind around the world that haven't been brought to do God's end-time work, he is going to go after the remnant of her seed. He will target them initially and continually until he does not see any mind anywhere that has the Spirit of God residing within it. That's what we face. So, There's going to be fear and panic. It's already starting with just three or four Ebola cases. People are getting scared. A few kids dying of this other virus. 
and people are beginning to panic. What will it be when there's a million or ten million? People will be scared witless. We had better have faith in Almighty God. Faith in His promises in Zechariah 2 and other places, and the Psalms and Isaiah. There are many of them we've covered before. If we do not have absolute faith in God, we are going to perish. He will protect those who obey Him and serve Him and look to Him and trust Him. No one else will be protected. He says He'll put a wall of fire around those people, whether it's literal flames or whether it just means absolute divine protection, I do not know. We'll soon find out. And they will be the ones who are protected and preserved to be a light to the world. So when he says, will I find faith on the earth, he won't find much. But I hope he finds it burning brightly within those who have truly put him first in their lives. With every aspect of their lives. He will heal. He said he will heal us and make us young and strong if we trust him. He said he'll provide food and cattle for us if we trust him. I hope he finds so great faith in Israel that if he says, I will protect you, I will take care of you, if you will love me with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, he will have those here who are near the kingdom of God. Good place to stop.